0: Everyone, and welcome to UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. This is big episode 105. You can believe that. Coming to you today from Stores, Connecticut. At least I am. I'm your facilitator, as always, Tom Breen, and joining me, of course, Julie Bartuka. Julie, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Thanks. How are you?
0: Good, good. Having some camera problems. This is an audio. Yeah. Nobody can see, but
1: I'm just a voice in a black screen. Sorry.
0: That's perfectly fine. You can't
1: see that I'm, I'm just beaming. Yeah, <laughs> I actually am. I'm very happy.
0: Well, I'm happy too. We have a fantastic guest with a lot of really interesting things to say that I think people are going to want to hear. But before we meet our guest, how about a little news? A little news of what's happening in the Yukon Nation. Some congratulations are in order to alumna Donna Hayward, class of 98, who was recently named National Principal of the Year. She's been principal at Haddam Killingworth High School in Higginum for the past nine years. And just recently, she was chosen as the National Principal Year by the National Association of Secondary Principals. Um, so that's a pretty impressive uh, distinction for her. She's done a lot of uh, leadership on all kinds of issues, and she was uh, down in Washington D.C. to meet Secretary of Education and fellow Niag alum Miguel Cardona.
1: How cool!
0: Yeah. So congratulations,
1: uh, that's a huge honor.
0: Yes, congratulations to Principal Donna Hayward. All right. Well, so let's let's meet our guest, Julie. Who are we going to be talking to today?
1: Yes, Tom. I'm very excited today. We are joined by Judy Riley, who is the director of a new center on campus that's part of the Worth Institute for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. It's called the Center for Neurodiversity and Employment Innovation. Judy has a background in business, special education, advocacy, and law, and two decades of experience working with neurodivergent individuals and their families in private practice, helping them navigate their pre-college and early college journeys. Back in 2021, she joined the Worth Institute to help design, build, and direct this new effort to not only help better prepare neurodivergent students for life after graduation, but also to work with industry leaders to help them create more inclusive hiring practices and corporate cultures where a neurodiverse workforce can thrive. And we're really excited to talk to her about this today. So welcome to UConn 360, Judy.
2: Hi everyone. Hi Tom. Hi Julie. Thanks for having me. And uh, sorry for all the terminology. It slips me up too. I wish I could have a shorter name for my center.
1: <laughs> it's okay. It's really important work, and and these words matter. Actually, my first question for you, for those who might not know, can you tell us a little bit about what neurodiversity means?
2: Absolutely. It's like the uh, number one question that I get, and it's a hmm. great place to start. So, neurodiversity is a term that is increasingly kind of all the buzz and what we're talking about, at least from the center's perspective, because there's a lot of different uses of this word, are the people really neurodiversity refers to all of us. And it sort of refers to the range of differences in individual brain function that all of us have. We're all individuals. So while we may have typicality around certain things, we're all going to have a little bit of a different way of thinking, perceiving, communicating our own style. Um, So neurodiversity is a term that really is looking at the brain almost the same way you look at biodiversity and saying we need all those different ways of looking at the world in order to thrive as a society. But the term that I really want to point us to is neurodivergent because this is, you know, people might say neurodiverse, uh, but I think technically what we're talking about is neurodivergent because neurodiverse is all of us. Mm-hmm. And neurodivergent is really for the folks who their cognitive functioning is in some way falling outside that neurotypical. So if we think about how we read, write, we look at math, but there's also attention and memory and processing and language, you know all these all these parts of our brain functioning that sometimes can fall outside typical. And so what we do is we call that neurodivergent and it often aligns with conditions like autism or ADHD, dyslexia, learning disabilities, processing differences. So at the end of the day, neurodivergent is really the community we're focusing on because for them, education, employment, relationships, and independent living can really be challenging, but I do want to make one, sorry, long answer. Important clarification. Yeah will often conflate what we're talking about here with intellectual disability. And we're not talking about that, right? There are intellectually disabled, lower intelligence folks who are also neurodivergent, but there's a big population of people who's neurodivergent and has not only average intelligence, but above average intelligence. So there are different solutions for different segments there.
0: You talked about some of the challenges that neurodivergent people face, and uh, there was a Deloitte analysis- I saw that that said that people on the autism spectrum have an unemployment rate of 85% compared to 4% in the overall population. First of all, does that sound right to you? And second of all, what might account for those disparities? What kind of challenges do folks face when they're looking for work?
2: That's such a great question. And I'm so glad you asked it. So the 85% unemployment statistic gets quoted all the time in print and uh, presentations. And it's not correct. It's based on a very small survey and it included a community of people who were nonverbal, mm-hmm. like I said, low intelligence, people who were never going to make it into the workforce. That said, let's cut it in half cut it in a quarter. We're still working with 25 to 30% unemployment and underemployment for folks who should be contributing at a much higher level. So you're right. The relative difference between that 4% and say, depending on how you slice this, we're looking at at least 25, 30, and 40% under and unemployment rates. That 85%... I don't know. It took hold. It's very eye catching, you know. As far as the types of barriers, you know, it's chronological. So if you're neurodivergent, you have a learning disability. I don't like to use the word disability, but that's, you know, nomenclature. I like to say learning difference. You're going to struggle to get through the educational journey from the get go. And so uh, you're swimming upstream all along and facing failure with respect to metrics of performance like GPA and the pace with which you can do your work, the ways in which you're expected to do your work. Maybe you, can't read or you have a writing disability, but there's 10 essays in this class, right? You're not going to do very well. So you're struggling to kind of work your way through education with what a special education in our public school system is meant to accommodate and provide services to teach you the skills that maybe you're weaker in. But if you think about it at the employment starting line... You're coming at it maybe with metrics like that, that are meeting of criteria for employment. So you might get screened out because of grades or work experience because you've had a tough time securing those, work experience being one of them. But the actual process of getting a job, the executive functioning skills, and that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. But what it really means is the ability to manage a lot of details, organization and time sensitive situations. So you think about a job search right? That's that's a ton of tiny details. It's very communications heavy. You've got to send your follow-ups. You've got to be doing your outreach. You've got to apply to all these different companies and, and opportunities with all their different processes. So there's a barrier because that's a set of skills that's very typically weaker in people with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, all of those. It's just one of those skill sets that tends to be weaker. And Interviews, the way traditional interviews are set up, they're set up to select somebody who's most like you. So you've got, you know, differing behaviors. Maybe you have visibly different behaviors, like you have a motor tick or you have to, it's called stimming, but there's, there's, there's a way that you like to move that kind of is fueling your brain. Maybe your communication style is very different. Somebody with autism is very literal. And you're not going to be able to have that open-ended question in a typical interview situation and get the answer that is going to get you the job. So barrier, barrier, barrier to getting the job. And then once you do have the job, if an employment environment isn't set up to understand neurodiversity and include you, so not misunderstand your behaviors, not judge uh, behaviors out of a place of ignorance, a behavior like missing a meeting, a behavior like a task you're avoiding, usually based in that anxiety or that skill deficit, gets labeled as lazy or negligent or not a performer. But when you're in an environment where they're educated, they can have that chance to interpret it the right way and offer the support that gets the person to be able to perform. So you know we're looking at skills, skills for the job. I mean, if you're being hired to interview other people, you should interview well. (laughs) But if you're being hired to write communications pieces. You're going to be a technical writer or you're going to be, I don't know, a business analytics person. That's what the interview should be assessing is your skills for the job.
1: You're talking about educating employers and that's kind of one facet of what the center is doing. And we'll get into what the center is doing in a bit, but I'm I'm curious about that piece of it. How, number one, as you're saying neurodivergent and neurodiversity are becoming more common terms and people are starting to understand what these things mean. How do we shift that culture of like, I'm thinking about like teaching to the test. It's sort of like that. It's like training students to ace an interview versus actually training on the flip side, the employer to make sure that they're open to the people who can actually do the job best. What are some of the ways that the center is going about changing that
2: culture and knowledge? That's so. It's cool, isn't it? Like you think it about is. It it's a big paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. A big mountain to climb. A couple things. So, I find the employer education piece of this to be such an important and critical part. So, the most basic way in which the center is doing its work is organizing around that employer education, and it's not just awareness. We that's great. Yep, we need to have people be aware of it. We have to have them understand neurodiversity, but the heavy lift is really in, okay, so now what do we do? How do we build a process to include these candidates better for the jobs that they're talented enough to do? And then how do we support them when we hire them? Do do we silo them? How do we integrate? How many other people need to understand this? So that's what the center's focusing on is that employer education piece. But in terms of the, the interviewing, that's one critical piece of the build, because if you want to do this in an inclusive way, what you find is you think more about the skills of the job, and For example, sometimes these companies are doing group interviews where they just hang out. It's almost like a meet and greet where the company is on the spot to more educate these candidates about what the job is and give them answers to any questions they have. And then they usually have a skills-based activity So, you know, if you're a programmer, it's pretty easy to to use that as an example. You'll have a coding challenge. You may do it in teams, but it's really about getting at who's the best person for the skill. And if there's any anxiety or nervousness that's stemming either from the situation or because anxiety is an inherent part of neurodivergence, you know, general anxiety disorder is so comorbid with these conditions that it's like buy one, get two free. So if there's anxiety, they know that they're probably not getting the best performance out of that candidate. So they work to bring that down.
0: Kind of a follow up to that. What do you say if a business says, well, what's in it for us? You know, oh. this benefits the business too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is what
2: they always say, whether they're direct about it or they're, they're, you know, working around to get to that answer. I call that sort of the business case, right? And you're right. It is built on value, for the business. Explaining that value is, it goes beyond ROI. And we're talking about including humans in a non-charitable way. We're talking about including them in a way that contributes value to your organization. But it's also hard to measure some of those pieces because one of the benefits that we're finding is organizations who are committing to this in a big way, because diagnostic rates are going up, whether that's because there are more people with these conditions or because we're getting better at identifying them, There are so many people in a company already who have a loved one who's been struggling for years as a kid in education. And maybe now they're a young adult and things are, you know, failure to launch. And so they're personally very impacted. And when their company does this, the engagement overall has been astonishing. So that's a business benefit. But how do you really, you know, so what we need to do is understand how do we quantify that to some degree so companies who aren't doing this can better understand it? Another benefit is that the managers who go through the training to understand neurodiversity and manage a a new hire who might be an early talent, early career person out of college who's got autism, they end up reporting that their managerial skills are better for everyone they manage now because they're much more attuned to individual differences and not judgments. So it, it yes, the business benefit story is the piece that gets more companies involved in this. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, the benefits from diversity have been well documented. So this is diversity of the mind. This is diversity of thought. And that's something that companies talk about all the time as a skill of the future, being able to problem solve and innovative thinking. And I don't know if you've heard this, but the whole superpowers theme. Have you, either of you been Yeah. It's sort of the buzz around neurodiversity. You know, what's your superpower? Mm. Well, the science around people with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and that's sort of, it's like my dot, dot, dot. There are relative cognitive strengths that are even higher and stronger in somebody with that brain profile than in a neurotypical person. They find creativity, attention to detail, pattern recognition, loyalty and retention is tremendous. So there are some actual diversity benefits to this population that are becoming more and more uh, identified and well-known. But I, did, I don't think you have to have a superpower to be deserving of employment. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Do any of us want that kind of pressure? I don't think no. so. <laughs> no. yeah. The center is partnering with a couple pretty major companies so far on these initiatives to kind of change that culture. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing and what some
2: of these sure. companies are doing with you? Yeah. Well, we have four corporate partners who helped us stand the center up, and that's KPMG, Travelers Insurance, Synchrony Bank, and Wells Fargo Bank. Uh, we engaged with each of them in a little bit different ways. Some of them are through partnering to help them source candidates for their programs that they have. Uh, Synchrony Bank helped to put together our first employer education course, which is how to build an inclusive culture. And it's for companies to send a team so that you're almost building that landing strip for the candidates so that when they arrive, They're entering a place where people have that education and understanding of neurodiversity. Wells Fargo is just premier partner right now. They are really investing in the center. And we have just launched a partnership to essentially take their program, which is incredibly robust and growing at a really rapid rate. In two and a half years, they've hired 200 candidates who are either on the autism spectrum or have some sort of executive functioning or learning difference. And they are growing like gangbusters and they put in supports all the way through. So it's from recruiting to the way that they do their interview and assessment, to the way they do onboarding. It's competitive employment. It's high salary, coaching and support afterward. And so we're helping to build their coach training curriculum. And we're doing a case study with about three or four faculty members here from the business school, school of education and psychology department to really get in there and start to put these quantifiers and even qualifiers around the success enablers for companies that are doing this. Like, is it really working? If so, what are the most critical aspects? What are the people participating saying? So we're excited to launch that this spring.
0: That's really exciting stuff. And I, maybe we should have we should have started with this question. But how it's did? Too the late now, go?
2: Tom. It's too late now. <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's
0: okay. Never too late. How did the center come about? What was the kind of the thinking that went into it? And sort of what was the process for for getting to this point?
2: It's interesting because David Noble is the director of the Worth Institute, and he credits a professor in the business school who he was speaking with that went to him and said, what's cutting edge? Where does the university need to be? What do we need to be doing to be innovative and and, solutions oriented? And this particular professor said, neurodiversity and employment. (laughs) And David Noble said, great. Do you know anyone? And this person happened to know me. And so one thing led to another. I educated David Noble about the just the population size of people who are impacted this way in the education realm, which is where I was professionally for so long. And he's like, great, let's focus on employment because it's the same people when they grow up having those same barriers to launching their lives and having independent lives that are commensurate really with their abilities and their dreams and their talents. So that's, that's what happened. And then we started to enlist those employers and also those alumni who were so instrumental in donating the financial support we needed to get up and going with the strategy and the design and the products and programs.
1: One thing that you're all doing too is that you have, I think there's more than 50 now from last time we talked, but there's a group of institutions at the University Council for Neurodiversity Employment. So you are working toward crafting some standards and practices in higher education, like the career services piece of things and how to kind of educate career services for how to help neurodivergent students. Why is UConn the right place to kind of
2: lead this charge? I think a couple of reasons UConn's the right place. We are a flagship university. with such a tremendous brand. And I found that when we were launching this, it was so well received by everybody we talked to. And I think it was because of that UConn brand. But then also we have the resources and reputation. We have people in the engineering school who've been getting millions of dollars out of NSF grants to study neurodiversity in the engineering field. We have the Renzuli Center for Creativity um, and Learning that has Project 2E that's going on to study, you know, ASD, uh, autistic students who are also gifted. We have the Beyond Access program in our Center for Students with Disabilities. So there's lots of pockets of expertise and energy and excellence around it. And I think it had to do with David Noble's leadership and seeing this was something that needed addressing and happening to connect with me, which that seemed to be what sparked it. I did want
1: to ask about your background. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work you did before you came to UConn?
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, so I am the the parent of four now adult children and my oldest is on the autism spectrum and my third child ended up with pretty substantial learning disabilities mm. differences. And um both of them are off the chart smart. You know, so it was just such a struggle. And so I came from a personal experience and I brought to it, I guess what might be my, maybe my business training and education in organization management and change management. And what does it take to persuade large institutions like public school systems and legal systems to how do you advocate for somebody in when what you need is is going so against the way something is built? And I had other parents and professionals in neuropsychology and the legal field and lots of the support providers come to me to ask if I could help in a more scaled way with mm-hmm. families that were going through that. So that was my private practice and it really set me up well I think for understanding the the larger societal approach to this because I'm always thinking about how are we scaling this? So this is not a Yukon centric Solution. We're not looking to fix this for UConn students and Connecticut employers. We're looking at what's this model for pipelining students who are at that college level with employers who are trying to tap into their talents very specifically because they're neurodivergent. And so we have that council of of schools. It's fifty five schools now across the country, and we work together on that career services side of the equation? How do we need to better engage the students and change what we do? Just like we're asking employers to change to better serve them in their career services realm. Mm And, you know, so we've got that pillar and we've got the employer pillar and and then we got to connect them, like get them to the same dance.
0: (laughs) Sometimes we have guests on and and they talk about an issue they're studying or they're working on. And we say, well, you know, do you perceive this getting better in the future? And they they often say, oh, no, no, it's going to get a lot worse. But (laughs) if, if... if, if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like there's actually optimism here that not just institutions like UConn, but employers, some of this is starting to take hold and the prospects are brighter than they were a few years ago. I mean, is that fair? Do you see this going in a positive direction?
2: I only see it going in a positive direction. It's really taken hold. And again, I don't know if that's because it's connecting so widely with the audience of people who are personally impacted, but also because the numbers, the number of impacted people is not sustainable from a you know societal impact and you think about somebody who's in their 20s or 30s and they don't find that reliable piece of employment so they don't move out so then you've got mental health impact and you've got family impact on the on the on the ability to contribute to those jobs you know so you've got parents taking care of adults mm-hmm. and it's not in so much of like i said these are not low iq people but I don't think somebody who has the aptitude to be working in a professional role has a part-time job that's, you know, hourly somewhere is going to be able to move out, first of all, but also have that sense of self-efficacy and growth and thrive. So it's a really big impact. And and businesses are, you know, whether they stick with it or not, you know, I don't want to be skeptical, but <laughs> but. I do believe that there's a core mission here that's taking and is going to hold. I just don't know what percentage of businesses this will be the shiny object that passes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it does feel like, I mean, on a kind of cultural level, at least, or societal level, that people, and you said awareness is one thing, and obviously there's a lot more education and change that needs to happen. But it does seem that this is becoming more talked about, less stigmatized, having any kind of neurodivergence is becoming more understood generally. So there's almost like a push in, you know, I kind of see all these things on, I'm still on Twitter for some reason. And I, you know, you see something every other day about adult ADHD or ADHD in women, and people are starting to kind of realize like, oh, do I have some of those traits? Do I like, we need to kind of change the way that we're working the way that we're what we're expecting from people at work. There's, there's all these like ripples kind of in just general understanding. So hopefully, the companies do see the benefits to latching onto this and really shifting that and Yep. It works for everybody. I
2: have just say, though, before we close, because this is one of my own personal nits, I think about that bell curve and I think about neurodivergent-like experiences inside the realm of still probably able to get and keep employment and probably able to get and keep social connections and able to live on their own. Maybe not as well as they could, with, especially with ADHD, where... A lot of people find those medications really help them in the same parts of the brain as somebody with a more severe form of ADHD, but it's almost like it boosts them from an 80% grade on their test to an 88, you know, whereas the population of people who are really we're trying to serve fall outside of that. It's like, but for these changes, these are people who will not have those three pillars of employment or education. So employment, social connection, and independent living.
1: That makes total sense. And I, I didn't mean to
2: conflate those two either. I just was no, thinking about fine. the ways
1: that it seems to be catching on a little bit more of talking about these issues Yeah, no,
2: general. you're totally right. And I love that part of it. And the only reason I point it out is because I think it's confusing mm-hmm. my a little bit in terms of, well, if everybody's happy, is, this is everywhere, you know? And so I know I totally support that the word is everywhere and the awareness is building. And I think that's only a positive thing.
0: Well, thank you so much for lending us your time and your expertise on this. This is fantastic. If, if people want to follow your work or learn more about the center, should they go somewhere online?
2: Yeah, we do. We have a, a webpage at Worth Institute. So you find us with UConn, Neurodiversity, Worth Institute. Okay. We'll put the link in the uh, show notes. Thanks, you guys. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Before we get to the History Corner, you wanted to plug a podcast.
1: Oh, yeah. We have been talking to our friends over at the Yukon Foundation, the Women and Philanthropy Group. They have been doing a really great podcast. It's introduced every installment by Regina Baraka, who's one of our famed professors of English. And it is called Yukon Women Changing the Game. In the latest episode, alums Kathy Berger, who is the director of research for the Dangerous Speech Project and managing editor of Yukon's Journal of Human Rights, and Emily Kaufman who is Associate Director of Investigative Research for the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism, discuss a modern view of online hate speech and freedom of expression with Yukon human rights professor Richard Wilson. They have several episodes up and all fascinating guests and topics, and you can find that at uconnwomenpodcast.podbean.com.
0: All right. So I thought for the history I would actually have kind of a news peg to it. And I would answer the question that came up on Twitter. What is the oldest building on campus? Those of you uh, listening to this, you may know that uh, the Whitney House on Route 195 near uh, Mirror Lake, unfortunately, caught on fire recently. They're still investigating the cause of it. They don't think anything was suspicious. And it's being assessed by a structural engineer to see if the building can be saved. Hopefully it can. But there were news reports that this was the oldest structure on campus. And those reports were happening because we were telling them it was the oldest structure on campus. It is not. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, it is not the <laughs> oldest structure on campus. The oldest structure on campus is the Cordial Stores House, which is an incredible name. And the Cordial Stores House is basically across the street. It's where the Yukon Recovery Community is based right now. It's the other White House across the street.
1: That's actually where I thought the fire was at first because of the location that was given. Yeah, they're was, so close together. Yeah, um, I was because I, I had classes there. It was like an honors building when I was a kid, a, a kid when I was a student. But, but, and yeah.
0: When I was a student here, and and we're both hip 20-something, so this wasn't that long ago. uh, When I was a student, it was was called Honors House.
1: Oh, yeah. I think it still was when I was here. I had some, what are they called? INTD FYE program, FYE courses there. So I thought it was that building, and I was very concerned. And then I was still concerned when I found out what building it actually was. But interesting that that's the oldest, though.
0: Yes. So that house was built in 1757. Wow. And the Whitney House, which when I was a student was called International House because the international program was based there. That was built... First decade of the 19th century. We're not exactly sure. However, there's a stone, a cornerstone that says seven, it's chiseled into it, 1769. So in 2006, when the 125th anniversary stuff was happening, they put up a, a marker, a sign saying this house was built in 1769 because they saw a, a date chiseled there. It turns out, our, my colleague Stephanie Reitz found this out, they built the foundation of Whitney House with material from an older, different house. Oh, so they took the foundation stones from a house that had been built in 1769, and they <laughs> used it, which is a very New England thing, like reuse reused building. Materials yeah.
1: Um, oh, wow. That's fascinating. How did we find out that this was all? Well, all so, hooey?
0: so I was getting questions on Twitter from alums who said, you know, Honors House is the oldest. I, I mean, I know this for a fact and I looked into it and they're right. I found a, a National Register of Historic Places application where we give the dates for both buildings. And the cordial stores house slash Yukon Recovery Community House is 1757. And the Whitney House is uh they give it the to 1802 to 1807. And if All you look right. at the houses, if you know anything about colonial architecture, the, the Whitney House is a federal style Right. And, and the stores house is colonial, so it makes sense.
1: Very interesting.
0: So yeah, so the oldest building on campus, it's it's not only not on fire, but it's it's modernized and it's being used for a great purpose, and so. Well, and neither of they're...
1: them are currently on fire, Tom.
0: Neither of them are currently on fire, and ho- hopefully <laughs> the Whitney House can be restored. Uh,
1: I really hope so. I hope that's not going to be condemned. That would be very sad. But I'm definitely. I'm I'm glad, in a way, that it is not the oldest building because that would have been compounded yeah. the sadness.
0: Yep. So uh, that's it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for uh, listening. Um, and uh, if you want to find us on Twitter, I'm at TJ Breen. Julie, I'm
1: still at Julie Vartuka for some reason. Some
0: reason. Uh, Do you still
1: tweet, Tom? I don't tweet very much. I just read.
0: I unfortunately tweet all the time.
1: (laughs) That's That's, always been your problem. (laughs) That is is a big
0: problem. Um, So yeah, come and look at my problem uh, on Twitter. (laughs) And if you have questions about the age of buildings on campus, apparently I can answer them. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to you next time.